Hello everyone, Brian here. If you'd like to support the Head Games Podcast, I encourage you to check out our Patreon page over at www.patreon.com forward slash headgamespodcast, games spelled G-A-M-S, of course. There's all kinds of exclusive content and perks waiting for you over there, so please go ahead and check us out, and thank you as always for your support. everyone, and welcome to episode 22 of the Head Games Podcast. I am your host, Brian Gottlieb, joined, as always, by my friend, Mr. Jonathan Carter. Jonathan, how does it feel to be one of the hosts of the most inconsistent podcast in the game? (laughs) (laughs) The one that just shows up whenever it feels like it, with no rhyme or reason. Gotta keep the listeners guessing. That's true. We, we're like a shell game. You go and you open your podcast app, and is there going to be a new episode of Head Games? Nobody knows. And you know, years and years of just data and science says that is, in fact, the best way to advertise a podcast is just show up without rhyme or reason. People yep. really appreciate that. Since the dawn of time, when people started podcasting, that's on rocks. That's just, the initial yeah. podcasts were on rocks. I don't know if people know that the rock casts. Yeah, it's just how how people were successful. That's how podcasting still exists today. Correct. No, all joking aside, uh, obviously we have been absent for a while. And uh, look, we don't we don't need to make excuses here. We are busy people, and uh, I appreciate that our listeners hang in there with us. They come back when we are able to get down and do some casting, and uh, that means a lot to us. That y'all are always here for us. So thank you, listeners, for bearing with our busyness. Jonathan, what have you been up to the last few weeks? Yeah, the. The real honesty with part of why we haven't cast is I have just been slaughtered by the annual tree and plant mating time of the year. Just like pollen has been slaying me for weeks. So if we had recorded, thankfully, number one, people only listen to us. They don't watch because had we recorded the past couple weeks and I was on video, I would have just been... Like half of my face would have been a tissue because it was just like weeks of my eyes were on fire. I was, I went through, I don't even know how many boxes of tissues. It was awful. It just feels like I'm sick every single time. Like we just got this early burst of heat and then everything started blooming and I forget about it every year. And then it comes. Yeah, it's too late. So is the DC area infamous for its pollen? Are you a high pollen area or is it just like something where no matter where you are, you're going to get brutalized by these allergies? Uh, When I lived in Denver, it was fine. Like the the air quality out there is great. Up in New York, it would always happen. The problem in DC is if anyone has heard of like cherry blossoms, cherry blossom festival, it's like really big Mm. around here. They look beautiful, but that adds like a third wave. So it's like... I think it's trees first and then it's and then it's like flowers they hit me the second time and then right around when that's coming down and I start to feel good the cherry blossoms start popping up which I think is like the last wave that's going to hit me and I'm like feeling pretty good now and also I'm like at that point where I've taken my daily allergy meds enough times that it's built up the appropriate level in my body and it had I like started earlier and then been smart about it. Like I probably wouldn't deal with this as heavily every year, but I just don't. So I don't know if you have to like tattoo yourself, like the person in Memento. (laughs) So you don't forget, but next year I would advise come like 
early March, you just get on this game. You start you yeah. start doing the allergy thing right then. So I, I know we had a chance to talk while we were on the break, and you shared a story with me during that time about one of the most impressive head games listeners you have met. And we've met loads and loads of them. So many people who do amazing things. You know, I had a chance when I was down at the Hunter Burton Memorial down in mm. Texas, talked to a bunch of listeners there. Uh, I met a tennis coach who has his kids listen to the Head Games podcast as part of their preparation uh, for tennis season. Yeah, that was really cool. But tell us about this listener you met recently, because I heard this story, and I think this is just the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, you're you're sharing that tennis player kids listen might refute the claim I was going to make, but I, I thought I had discovered what might be the youngest and and if he's not the youngest, he's definitely one of the youngest like loyal listeners of both head games and the game podcast but in the past few weeks and weekends i've had a few tournaments i've gone to and played some magic at and uh this one kid was at numerous of them and approached me like people either they hear me introduce my name to to my opponent and they'll recognize my voice or they'll see my name on pairings or standings but kid introduced himself to me and I was immediately impressed by this kid's approach to competition because looking back at what I was doing when I was 12, it was not this. Like he went so far as to say that like on the way to school, he will listen to podcasts like head games. I don't remember entirely what I was doing on the way to school at 12 years old. I can't remember if Walkman and Discman were out yet. If they were, I was likely listening to like some form of 90s rock or hip hop. But like I definitely wasn't listening to something that was going to make me a better competitor. I don't no, know. About nothing, you. nothing useful. <laughs> nothing useful no. was done in my life whatsoever at that age. Basically, it was strictly horrible behaviors. Probably being like a sore loser was 90 percent of my game yeah. at that point. Yeah. And so here's this kid who's 12 and is like already absorbing as much information as possible on how to be a better competitor. And it's not just in magic, but like he mentioned doing like model UN and I'm sure he has a bunch of other things that he he does that are competitive um, or just like how he approaches things. And I just think it's so cool that there are people out there maybe listening to our class or, or maybe just other resources that are now available like in 2019 that at that age, there are some people who are taking such a deliberate approach to being better. And it reminded me of like, some people, I feel like part of what they, what stops them from doing stuff like that is like a, a fear. And it, and I just always think of when I think of kids, like when I was learning to ski, you would see like these little five-year-olds just like flying down the slope. Like they're just on skis. They're like, there's no sticks in their hand or anything and like they just don't care they just they just do it and i think like this person and and probably others like it's just that same kind of fearless approach to just okay well this this podcast is going to help me be a better competitor why why wouldn't i listen to it and it was just so cool to experience and it's that type of kid that is just going to wreck every single person in a few years that isn't doing that yeah and you know, you talked about that absence of fear, that absence of really worrying about judgment 
Mm-hmm. I, I think it's such an important thing for a competitor to have access to. Uh, and it segues, oh wait, segues. Yes. This has been, this has been corrected so many times. And listen, I'm going to, I'm going to put this out there right now. I know <laughs> the word is segue. Just my brain is so stupid. It has this like constant text scroll going on in my mind. And I see the stupid word segue written as segue. And I say it every single time. And this time I caught it. So all you people who have been yelling at me for years, I hope you take this moment, take it to heart. As we segue into our topic for the week. Yeah. I just want to say I'm one proud, but two, like early on when we started casting and like we hadn't quite gotten uh, a flow that was really automatic or at least in my head, like I didn't know how we would handle flowing back from something. Anytime you would say segue, I'd be like, (laughs) I'd I'd have this internal dilemma of like, okay, mental note, I need to correct Brian on how to say this because he said it again on a podcast, but I don't want to do it right now because we've got a good flow going. It's just so so weird. It's it's so strange because I know that's not the word. And there's other words too, where I do this exact same thing. None spring to mind right now. And like, even after having been corrected so many times and knowing that these people are right, and I sound like an absolute idiot, I have a very difficult time stopping myself from doing it. But we got there this time. So let's segue into our next topic. We are talking today about basically what we're terming errors in logic, right? And and Jonathan, I'll let you do our introduction and kind of drill down on exactly what we're going to be discussing today. Yeah, so there's there's two sides of it. One is errors in logic and by that what we mean is your brain like our brains mm, take shortcuts a lot of the time because if we thought about everything we needed to do or think about in detail and and walked through every single step, that would slow down a lot of our processes. And that's that's not useful in a lot of scenarios, especially when we're talking about performance. There's oftentimes very quick thinking that has to happen. And so our brain creates these shortcuts, uh, like muscle memory, if you think about it, is often a shortcut, like your body knows to do a certain thing and it just does it. And, and these can be very effective a lot of times, though, there are situations where our brain goes on autopilot and we miss some type of evidence or information, and that leads to faulty thinking or uh, thinking with errors. And then in a similar vein, there's a whole line of research into what they call automatic negative thinking, which this is in particular when we're at our lowest points. So either we've suffered a loss, maybe we didn't win something, or maybe we are feeling depressed, our brain is really good at creating these negative thought patterns. And it does it automatically. Like, I don't think any of us like wake up every day or walk into the world wanting to intentionally think in a way that's negative, or think in a way that has faulty logic. It's just something our brain does automatically. And it can get us in trouble in a lot of situations. And so the way this ties into our young super listener is that (laughs) I think a lot of us and a lot of people who believe they want to do whatever they can to be a better competitor resist things like the explorations that we do here on the podcast because they feel secondary, right? This doesn't feel like preparing for a magic tournament or a fighting game tournament or whatever you're going to compete in. 
listening to this podcast very much feels like you're not practicing in the moment. But this listener basically just was willing to accept you at your word, believe in this approach and taking stock of your mental game and figuring out how you can improve it. And I am very, very sure they are going to see results as time goes on based on that willingness to avoid any negative thinking that you might associate with something like this type of endeavor. Like, oh, people will think I'm weak because I'm not working on this aspect of my game. Or people will judge me because I'm on the bus going to school, listening to to podcasts (laughs) in my own place. And, And our listener has displaced all of these notions and is just focused on improving as a person. And that's really cool to see. Yeah, it's awesome. So you talked about automatic negative thinking. And I I think that's where we're going to kind of start this discussion. And like you said, this is often relating to people who are dealing with depression issues. I will say that those issues are everywhere. As I have gotten older and met more and more successful people in my lines of work, I would say the ratio of people who suffer depression at some point in their lives has slowly approached one to one. Like it's just something that we all deal with at some point. There should be no stigma, no shame behind it. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And especially, I think, present in the gaming world. Uh, it's something where, you know, our pursuits in a lot of ways are escapism. We like to do things that put our minds at ease and uh, give us an outlet. And so we form these communities around whatever games we're playing, and we use that to kind of deal with these issues. So I I do think that thinking about these automatic negative thinking patterns is extremely useful for a huge percentage of our listenership, myself included. Certainly, these are things I've dealt with. So I know you have some research you want to present to us and talk about when it comes to automatic negative thinking. Yeah. And this is, I haven't made this disclaimer in a while. So just uh, again, normalizing that this type of thinking is very common, but what we're going to talk about, there are some concepts that like, if you were getting clinical help from a psychologist, psychiatrist, therapist, et cetera, like this is some of the same research that they might pull on. And so I just want to say that like, if you listen to this and you find that this is this type of thinking is pervasive for you it's it's something that happens all day every day or like a large portion of it like as we've said numerous times seeking help is a sign of strength and like there are people far more qualified than the the 60 minutes or so you're going to listen to here uh, about finding long-term change for some of these thoughts but basically Aaron Beck is one of the names uh, around automatic negative thinking. Uh, it's it, This is like a, an area of cognitive uh, behavioral psychology. So basically, we're just trying to change how our thoughts work. It breaks de- it down into what he calls a triad, which there's basically just like three aspects of it. Number one, the negative thoughts can be about yourself, who you are. And so sometimes you sound like, I'm worthless, I'm not any good, etc., They can be about negative thoughts about the world. So your thoughts about how the world perceives you or other people perceive you. So if you think that no one else values you, that would be that type of negative thought. And the negative thoughts can also be about the future. And so 
with your negative thoughts about the future, generally you think whatever's happening now is going to continue to happen and it doesn't matter what you do. And so the way these break down is a lot of times our, our automatic negative thoughts are one or multiple of these. And so you could see how if, if we add those all together, let's say I have negative thoughts that I think I'm worthless and I don't think anyone values me and I think that this is going to be like that forever, that that can put us into a place that spirals and it, it becomes very hard to grasp control. And that's we're talking like big picture. Like if we think that about everything in life, that's massive. But we can also have these in like micro occurrences. Like if I'm competing in a sport and I think I'm not any good at it, my teammates don't think I'm good and it doesn't matter what I do, I'm not going to get better. That might not affect other areas of my life. It probably would, but it's possible it doesn't but it would likely affect how much effort I put into practicing for my sport or something like that. I want you to talk about this in a super micro sense, because I'm actually thinking about a specific series in league of legends that I watched. I think it was last playoff season. It was in the Korean league and maybe it was two playoff seasons ago, but regardless there's, there is a team, a very high performing team that was involved in a best three out of five playoff series. And if you were to watch the body language of the players involved in this series, you saw these negative thoughts creeping in. Like it was just clear as day on their face to the extent that when that team came out for game three of this series, they replaced almost their entire starting lineup. And now in League of Legends, substitutions are something that are used with a very light touch in most instances. You'll swap one role, or maybe in some cases you have a duo that works particularly well in a certain situation and you'll bring them in. But this was basically a wholesale change for a team which had been very, very successful throughout the entire season, had made the playoffs, I think was even favored in the particular matchup they were playing. And things had gotten so bad that they had to wholesale replace the members of the team that they trotted out for the final game of the series. And the, I mean, this team got absolutely obliterated in that third mm-hmm. game because they were, frankly were fielding worse players at that point on the whole. Talk about how in that kind of situation where these pervasive thoughts have spread amongst an entire team, what can you do in that micro instance to stop the spiral and get things back on track for this one competitive endeavor? And then after that, we'll talk about broader, how do you stop these things long term? Yeah, man, when it's when it's like full organizational meltdown, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. that's pretty tough. Because a lot of times, like long term, like a lot of things we've talked about, some of the best ways to fight this is just slowly building awareness of when it happens. And so in that situation, you got to imagine there's a lot of pressure, especially if they're favored, they are likely going into that match anticipating winning. And so now they're they're in a situation that perhaps is unfamiliar for them. They are likely facing the end of the season if it doesn't go well. Um, so there's a lot of like finality on it leading to the, the roster swap. Like we have to assume like okay, the roster swap already happened. They're about to zone in and you're just wondering like how do the five people who are now faced with playing this game, like get past all that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think they can't. I think they are put into an impossible situation. Yeah. It's really how do you stop things before that's your only option? Mm. Like that's the last thing you can do. Yeah, well, I mean, like the the one positive aspect of it is like you have to imagine the coaching staff looked at this and they saw whatever was going on wasn't working. And so an aspect that they can control is changing the roster. And so perhaps the coaching staff wasn't actually on some negative spiral. They were actually looking at this as our players aren't playing well. We can't fix them quote unquote in the moment, but what we can do is use these other people. And so that is the coaching staff attempting to grab control for the people that get put into the game for a game three like it's very easy to get caught up with the fact that like you aren't the the A team you clearly weren't valued enough to be put in first and now it's on you and if you lose like you're going to be the team that lost it you're not it, like no one's going to be looking at the other scenario of it and you can get caught up on that and that's not going to really focus your attention well so it's some combination of isolating what's going on in your head and like trying to figure out like what I can control. A lot of times when people are successful at restructuring their thoughts with things like this, it's uh, it's by building some evidence into it. So like you're, you're on one of the best teams in the world. Like, yeah, you might be the, the second string, but like you're on one of the best teams and there are like all but 10 of you are on, other teams so like you're among the best 10 people at least according to this org so you can focus on that like we're putting we're not being put into the situation because we're the backups we're getting put into the situation because our team trusts us to like dig us out of this hole and like mm-hmm. sometimes focusing on that as like i have evidence that i am able to do something like this therefore i'm going to focus on that evidence but sometimes it's like in a situation like that where it's super high stress, I imagine a lot's going on. This isn't a skill that you can just like pick up that like if I somehow appeared before this, this Korean team and could speak Korean suddenly and I could impart wisdom on them, like me telling them this technique isn't going to just work magically. It's it's something they have to build upon. But really like the, the quote unquote quickest fix would be just focusing on the things you can control and trying to just like play League of legends and not worry about what happened in the past two games. Hmm. Okay. So let's go bigger now and let's talk about where these things, these negative thoughts are persistent. And again, let's do it in relation to competition. So we don't want to go broader because that starts to get into the clinical realm, obviously. And that's not yeah. our intent is to try and help people with depression. I would love to help people with depression, but that's something that demands, medical assistance. That's not our role here. We're talking about in the context of gaming and you have these pervasive negative thoughts. I'll never be good at Magic the Gathering. Uh, No one wants to help me improve my game. There's no chance I'll ever pick up on this level that so-and-so is on. If those things are a consistent part of your training in a game, how do you start turning that ship around? I think one of the easiest things people can start to do like it, re- it requires you to know that you're having these kind of thoughts, but starting to write them down. So ultimately we need a good dose of self-awareness to be able to get to the point where we can interrupt our thoughts in the moment. And it's hard to do that just relying on our own brain. So if we can figure out the types of negative thoughts or even just like 
ineffective. Like they, they can be thoughts that are just not helping you compete, writing them down and seeing like one, if there's like a pattern to the type of thought that you have, or if there are certain situations that pop up these thoughts, starting to write down what these recurring thoughts look like helps you build a basis to then go back and do what I was saying about that league scenario where you can write down like a a counter argument to what these thoughts are saying when you have some distance from it. So if I'm, let's say we're going to podcast and I find that when we're starting a podcast, I have some thought about doubting my ability to convey whatever we're talking about that day. And if I find that this is a thought that I have every single time we go to podcast, it's really hard potentially for me in the moment to come up with like a really good rebuttal to myself. But when I'm not immediately needing to perform, I can go back to where I wrote down these thoughts of like, oh, I don't know what I'm talking about in this podcast. And I can say, well, you know, you've been doing your job for 10 plus years, you have a a, like strong background in this and like you do know what you're talking about. And like, so I can start to write down like an argument against my own thoughts when I've got some distance from the pressure of it. Mm. I want to say, I love this so much. And I, I always talk about this story in relation to the power of writing things down, because this is actually a technique that even before I spoke with you for the first time. It's something I had discovered on my own. And the context I always present to people, and this comes at a good time because if you follow me on Twitter at BRYNGO over on Twitter, you saw that I shared a picture just the other day of myself from high school. And when I was in high school, I weighed over 300 pounds. I have since lost somewhere in the neighborhood of about 120 pounds. And while my weight still is constantly fluctuating, much much to my chagrin. It's much better than it was without question. And one of the impetuses for change in regards to that problem was just a point where like, I had realized that my weight was making me very unhappy. And it's something that until that moment, I had kind of written off and brushed aside and just, I convinced myself it didn't matter to me. And at some point I realized I was simply fooling myself the step I took before I lost any weight, I pulled out a notebook one night and I wrote down the words, I will lose weight. That's it. Four words. It it wasn't as detailed as you're saying, but Mm -hmm. for the first time, I was concrete acknowledging something I wanted to change. And I did. It, It worked from that point. And people are always asking, you know, what did I do to change? My habits were so unhealthy in my youth that it didn't take dramatic change for me to see immediate growth. Like basically I stopped drinking regular soda, which I drank an incredible, incredible amount of, uh, and started drinking diet soda. And then I was now eating at my college cafeteria as opposed to eating at home. And, you know, in my house, we were always on a very tight budget. Food was not the most nutritious and healthiest options. It was just basically what was cheap. That was what was always in my house. And at college, I had the option to, I'm not going to say I ate well all the time. Certainly anyone who's been on a college meal plan knows how that goes, but (laughs) There was a little bit more diversity in my meals, Uh and that alone was enough to inspire rapid and uh, pretty dramatic weight loss. But I do think that just having that acknowledgement was worth a lot because it did make me take that step to start drinking diet soda. And it occasionally had small influences over the way 
I treated my body and the things I put into my body. And just those small influences building up over time was enough to make a dramatic difference. So I'm on board with this approach 100%. I completely believe in the power of writing down your goals and things you need to address and things you need to better about yourself. Yeah. And just like, there are likely people out there who can manage all sorts of stuff like this in their head while still going about life. But I'm just thinking about like, before we started recording, we were just talking about flights and Brian like paused and like actually booked his flight because life's going to happen the moment we stop podcasting. And like, he might forget to book that flight. And like, this isn't to make fun of Brian. It's just to demonstrate, like we have a lot of stuff going on in life. And if we don't either do things right when we need to do them or take time to write it down, it's really easy to get past that moment. And then like in this situation, where we're talking about writing down the, the like thinking that's not working for us. If we don't pause, write it down and take some time outside of the action to evaluate it, we're just going to be back in another situation and another competition. And that same type of thought is going to pop back in our head and we haven't done anything about it. And so here we are again, just starting from scratch. The thoughts going to get in our way. It likely could affect our performance and we didn't write it down. We didn't like game plan how to fight it. And so without breaking that cycle somehow, it, it just becomes really hard to change that type of thinking. Yeah. And I think, you know, you talked about me needing to just stop and do what I needed to do in that moment. So I didn't forget part of that is just knowing yourself, right? Like, you know, what works for you, you know, you have enough evidence and history to know that if you aren't, you know, acknowledging these things in some concrete form, it will again fade to the background. Or if you aren't immediately booking your flight, you'll close your tabs like an idiot Mm -hmm. and (laughs) not do it. And you'll find out a week before you don't have a flight to where you thought you were going. So if you've had those experiences in the past, do something new. I mean, there's so much value in just trying a new technique, a new approach, because you never know which one is really going to click with you and really make a difference in your life Whenever I see people who are making the same mistakes repeatedly and falling into the same patterns without trying something new, I I just, I get sad because why, why not take that shot at something different? It can't be worse than the situation you're currently in. Do something crazy. That sounds like it makes no sense, but someone is telling you, oh, this worked for me. Give it a shot. What is the harm in taking an approach that's a little bit outside the norm of something you would usually do? You never know which things are going to yield complete and all-encompassing change. Because when I talk about my weight loss, I I mean, I was discussing with people on Twitter, when you've had dramatic weight loss like that, and people who are listening to this and have gone through it, you understand that you see your life almost as bifurcated. It's like you lived two different lives because Hmm. you were such a different person under one. And you look at pictures of yourself and you can't even reconcile that person with who you presently are. It just doesn't it's a, it's a strange, almost surreal feeling, but it doesn't really make sense to you. And then that's to say nothing of your relationships. Like there's people who, you know, I found that since I lost my weight when I left my hometown and I went to college and I would interact with people who I knew in high school, they almost didn't know what to make of me because I was <laughs> not the same person they had seen previously. And then obviously there's people who just have always known me in this kind of new fashion. And these pictures are just no, that can't possibly be you to them. So it, it's it's interesting how uh, dramatic this kind of change can be to people. And I, I know I'm rambling a little bit about it, but I just think that you never know which small 
change in your routine is going to trigger this big change and let you be someone you want to be much more than who you presently are. Did you have any time stirring, I guess, your first big push for weight loss? Or it could have been something else you, you have tried to accomplish where like you had a small success and you just downplayed it? Or were you pretty good at like being your own cheerleader? You know, it's it's so strange. And I think my, if we're talking about specifically the, the weight loss endeavor, it was so atypical in that it wasn't this focused, all-consuming effort. It was just mm. the natural result of lifestyle changes. Like okay. big picture, I live somewhere new. My entire life is different than it previously was. And for whatever reason in this life, a bunch of healthy changes snowballed. And I, I remember... I actually didn't get on a scale. I mean, the, it, it had been at least a year since I had previously been on a scale. And I know at one point I stepped on a scale at 310 pounds. And the next time I got on a scale, I was 215 pounds. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so that's, a. I mean, it's, it's about a year between those two numbers, but it was a, a huge change. And so I, I think part of it was I wasn't acknowledging any success because I was just kind of like, doing my thing. And it's not mm -hmm. where my head was focused despite this dramatic change. Like I knew it was happening. People would say things to me. I would have to go buy new pants. Like my, my clothes didn't fit anymore. So it was clear <laughs> something was changing. It just maybe wasn't clear how dramatic it had been. Yeah. I, I asked because sometimes like one flavor of, uh, of automatic thinking that sometimes comes up with situations like this is we, have even a minor success and we just they, they call it like minimizing where we don't give it enough clout in terms of what we actually did either by like <clears throat> let's say you with weight loss like there you know someone else who's like attempting to lose weight or get fit and they're doing better than you and so like you are doing really well but if you were to compare it to them it looks like you're not doing well and so like instead of give yourself any credit, you just completely downplay it and be like, well, look, I'm not doing good enough. Or like, let's say you're trying to get better at a sport or a game and it's a similar situation. Like you have someone else you can compare to and they are having more or faster success. Mm. A lot of times our brain just automatically goes to the sit, like the, the outcome isn't, oh, I'm, I'm doing okay. Like I'm still succeeding. I should be proud of myself. It's I, what, what could I be doing differently? Like they're clearly doing better. Yeah. And I see that one all the time in the magic context, because we tend to form play groups in magic, yeah. basically people who we associate with and talk about the game with and test the game with. And I think so many people only judge themselves by the best performer in their play group. And I, I've been guilty of this at times in the past, for sure, where it's just like, I see someone succeed and I can't reconcile their success with what's happening to me at the same time. And mm. it's kind of selfish and certainly self-absorbed to look at someone else's successes that way, right? Like, well, what does this mean for me? What does it say about me? As opposed to even be able to see it as someone else's accomplishment. But I've seen it lead to some real unhealthy patterns where anytime someone else is granted success, people have this almost bitterness and resentment that it's not coming their way. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, at the same time, they could be having success. They can be improving. They can be achieving goals that only months ago would have been almost inconceivable, but they're all blunted by the fact that someone near and close to them 
is doing just a little bit more and a little bit better. Yeah, I've seen it in, in hockey. So I play men's hockey. And so each season, there's usually a couple people who either are trying to pick up hockey for the first time or they maybe played in high school and now they're coming back to hockey when they're 30 something. And so people will compare themselves to other people who are also, you know, not in the NHL. <laughs> like we're all in men's league hockey. And like I've seen examples of people who just, it takes them a while to score their first goal. And like, they're seeing other people who are probably comparable skill level and they're scoring and they just like, don't understand what they're doing wrong. And it's not that they're doing anything wrong. It's just that it's really hard to score a goal in hockey. It's a really small net. It's a really big goalie. And the goalie is also going to do stuff to try to, to not let the, the puck in. Uh, and then like they, they score their first goal and like people are excited for them and they just aren't excited as excited with their own success, even though like they've been doing the right things and they've been making improvement. It's just like they compare it to something else and they just like, and again, this is not an intentional thing. No one, no one go, wants to go into that situation and be like, oh yeah, I scored a goal, but let me think about how I can make myself suck. Their brain is just going on autopilot and re- comparing them to other people in like an unfair way. And it's just something our brain knows automatically. And it's, it, it's another like flavor of this type of, of thinking. There's another layer to it too, in that there's fixation on a feedback mechanism that actually is not reflective to overall skill or success at the game, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. anyone who plays hockey knows that your contribution to a team is not defined solely by goal output. It's defined by a million other things that you're doing on the ice at all times. And in the same way, you could say that about magic. Your skill in magic is not reflective of the results you have achieved. Results bear a lot of variance. They bear a lot of luck and opportunities, and they aren't necessarily a clear one-to-one reflection of skill. Is their skill implied in those results? 100%. Absolutely. Just like their skill implied in scoring goals, but it, it's not everything. It's it's not the final metric. And I think our brains also have a tendency to see things in very black and white terms. Yeah. Like, if I score a goal, I am good. If I do not, I have performed poorly. And it's never, ever that clear. Yeah. And our brain also has an annoying way of filtering the praise we get for those successes. So you can have a success, but since you're so focused on improvement, or maybe you just don't think you're good yet, you, even in your success, have like this massive list of everything you did wrong or could have done better. And so your brain can actually do this thing where you hear people praising you and you actually think it's like an insult because you feel like they're just saying what they have to say, but they saw Mm. all your mistakes too. And so like your brain doesn't even let you have that. Like you you had the success and your brain's like, no, look at all those mistakes you made. Uh, If you made that many mistakes, is it really a success? No, I don't think so. You know, I have to say, Almost 22 episodes into Head Games now. I'm starting to get the opinion that brains might be jerks. Like, I think they're kind of just like, yeah, I think they're kind of just bad. And in general, maybe I'll try removing mine. We'll see what happens. (laughs) Just operate without a brain. They used to try that. And uh, how'd it go? It would probably stop this kind of thinking. Okay. I just just don't know if you do anything else well. (laughs) Right. I don't know if that would be a net benefit or not, given all the other things I'd likely have to give up. So, I don't know. We'll we'll put the brain removal on hold for now. And instead, we'll keep talking about 
other things we can do. Uh, anything else you want to offer as a playbook to answer this automatic negative thinking? Yeah, there's a couple more plays for sure we can talk about. One other just like quick anecdote, another flavor of these that I think is really interesting. And, it, and this is more so out of the performance context. This is like some relationship advice from head games. Oh, uh, look at that. <laughs> interesting turn for head games. Welcome yeah. back to head games, the smoothest relationship <laughs> cast on the planet. Yes. This is your host, Brian Gottlieb, joined <laughs> by Mr. Jonathan Carter. Jonathan, how are you doing today? Well, we're going to talk about mind reading. Nice. That was, that was a good smooth voice. That was good. Yeah. Do my best. So this, it, it can happen with performances, but this is a type of mental shortcut our brain takes in particular with close relationships. This shortcut is like, again, the, the commonality between all these is our brain generally just doesn't care about evidence. It just goes from A to Z and, and we just do what is efficient with our energy. And so mind reading is where your, your brain is just assuming what someone else is thinking. And so this takes a couple of shapes. Like one, I can assume that you knew what I was saying when I said something. So a lot of times this happens in really close relationships, either like personal relationships, they can be professional, they can be teams where like I don't say something because I assume that you know what I expect. So like, let's say on a Thursday, Brian and I, this never would happen, usually record our cast and both of us assume the other one knows and that like prevents our brain from actually reaching out and scheduling casting that night because like we're just assuming that the other person knows we have that expectation and our brain just like, oh, well, I don't have to worry about that. I'm not going to put energy into it. That's easy. Uh, I think about it in terms of close relationships. I think Valentine's Day is like a hilarious example like the stereotypical Valentine's Day expectation, judgment of holiday aside, where like in a close relationship, you and your significant other, like one, one of you asks the other, like, hey, do you want anything for Valentine's Day? And you can answer any any holiday here. Like, do you want a present or do you want to do something? And your significant other responds like, no, we don't need to do anything. That's fine. And then if your significant other then doesn't get anything or you don't actually do anything on that holiday and they get mad at you, that anger is coming because they assumed that you knew that them saying no wasn't actually a no. The classic sitcom <laughs> Valentine's Day yeah, scenario. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> so sometimes sitcoms are really good for teaching psychology. <laughs> I believe that. Yeah. So like what's, what's happening there is basically our brain is going – on a shortcut and it's preventing us from actually talking to that other person because if we talk to a person that's where we would get the evidence of actually knowing what their intention was and actually knowing if they understood what we were saying there's like a a, a small twist on this too where we can even mind read what someone else is gonna say to us so like let's say we were we were talking hockey, magic, think about any team sport. If we want to be on a team with somebody, but we quote unquote know that they don't think we're good enough, that we might not even ask to be on a team because we know that the answer is going to be no. This is that whole scenario where you have the argument in your head and you're furious about it. 
And then you stop for a second. You're like, wait a second. This didn't actually happen. I implied all of this to myself. I assumed everyone's position throughout this argument. And I've created this incredible wall of anxiety about an event, which certainly has, there's no reason it has to happen that way. I've just assumed it's going to happen this way. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we all do this from time to time. I found I did it a lot in the professional context. I would feel like I was going to get chastised for something that didn't get done properly, or uh, I was going to deliver news to, say, a partner, and they were going to flip out about it, and it was going to lead to the spiral of work. And then I would go deliver the news, and they'd be like, well, sometimes it just happens, and that would be the end of it. (laughs) And I've created you know, a day's worth of stress in my head by creating this whole back and forth argument that just isn't there. So, yeah. I mean, what's the, what's the answer here? Because again, none of us want to do this. Like this isn't something we endeavor to do, but every single one of us does in certain amounts, I think. And you're right. It's just not useful whatsoever. And let me back up. Maybe it is useful because say something resembling that argument does take place. Doesn't it make sense to have prepared and to know how you would respond to it? Like there's two sides to this coin, right? Yeah. I think sometimes, well, a lot of times our brain going on autopilot helps. Um, Like some of our best performances are when we just let our our brain and our body do its thing. And we're not talking about those times. Similarly, when you do something based on a, a gut feeling or intuition, a lot of times you're doing that because you have a huge wealth of experience and you know how you're supposed to act in a certain situation. And, and again, that's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about times when, and you might not realize it in the moment, but like, let's say after the fact, you realize that you operated on like a lack of information or like a lack of evidence. And then something ended up differently. A lot of times, if you look back, you can see like where that line of thinking happened. And then on the other end, it's when we notice either in the moment or after the fact that what our brain was saying to ourselves wasn't helping. So like either our thoughts were negative or our thoughts were just ineffective for that moment. We're talking about those situations. If, if we needed to slow down and think about our thinking 24 hours a day, like we would get nothing done. So it, it is, it's useful that our brain goes on autopilot. We just want to make sure that we're checking the autopilot sometimes. Right. And so this is more about consciousness and checking in with yourselves and realizing when we've let these things get out of line and are kind of shaping our behaviors, our interactions with others. Yeah. So what we talked about earlier in terms of like journaling, I think that's a a good first step in starting to understand these patterns in thinking. And then what that eventually does is it, it like builds this muscle where we might be able to also ask ourselves questions in the moment. So if I notice I'm going down some line of thinking that's automatic or it's just like not working for what I'm trying to do, maybe I can ask myself for evidence about that thought and I can like do what I was suggesting for the journal of like writing down the thought that's not working and then finding evidence to counteract it. Like we can start to do that in the moment Hmm. and that can help us hone in some control. That's like the very active attack your thoughts method. I've mentioned multiple times that that's not generally the approach I go with because it works for some people. And, And if you try it out and it works in the moment, like do it. 
but I think for some people, actively changing your thoughts is difficult. And so the other option, so to speak, is a mindfulness-based approach where you accept the fact that, you know what Brian are saying, like our brains suck and they are going to say things to us that is not helpful and that's fine. Like we're going to have thoughts that are negative or we're going to have thoughts that don't work for us and those thoughts are going to cause emotions and sometimes they don't feel great. And that in and of itself doesn't usually cause a problem. Where we start to get problems is when we attach judgment or more thinking on top of those thoughts. So we think we think about our own worth on a team because of a, a play we just made. And instead of just stopping there, we then go farther and say like, because I can't score a goal in hockey, then I'm a an awful husband. And we start to make it global and pervasive. Mindfulness approach would be like building that mindfulness muscle would be sitting there and deliberately trying to be aware of all the thoughts that are happening. And then instead of trying to change them to just accept that they're happening and then try to redirect your attention back on something that's useful for that performance or useful for whatever it is you're trying to do. I'm on board with that. That makes a lot of sense to me. So I think we've done a great job of addressing kind of Beck's triad, the depression issues with the negative thoughts about self, about the world, about the future. But errors in logic can extend outside of that realm, certainly, and outside the realm of automatic negative thinking. We have a bunch more we want to talk about. I think, though, we're going to break the show here. We're going to come back on our next episode. Who knows when that will occur? It could be a year from now. It could be two years. could be next week. All the options are on the table. But whenever it happens, we're going to come back. We're going to talk more about errors in logic. And we'll see you then on the next Head Games. Head Games.